Before we start or get the introduction of Rabbi Artson, I want to make sure you're in the right room. This is the Rabbi Brad Shavit Artson event, Renewing the Process of Creation, a Jewish Integration of Science and Spirit. Uh, please take a moment, turn off your cell phones and put it on vibrate mode. And know that Grendel's in the back recording today's program that goes up on our iTunes site, if that's okay with you. We have over 200 uh, recordings up there. So this, you know, this is our 16th year of programs in Orange County. If you have not attended any events for 16 years, then you can catch up on about 200 of them at your leisure. Go to iTunes and type in OCCSB Podcast. We have people who listen to programs from around the world because we get uh, great comments. So with that, Rabbi um, Ellie Spitz, would you mind doing the introduction? And then we'll get started. Thank you all for coming out today and uh, enjoy. So just a word about Ari. He read Torah in synagogue on Monday and Tuesday. Today he's holding this event. Tomorrow he's launching a Catalina father and child camping trip. And, a, and of course he has Amy and Ezra and Clara. So in awe of Ari and now in awe of my friend Rabbi Brad Artson, a man of integrity and wisdom, a rabbi's rabbi, Rabbi Artson. Thank you very much. It is lovely to be back in Orange County. Some of you may not know that I was a congregational rabbi here for 10 years straight out of rabbinical school. So you guys learned me everything that I needed to know, um, for which I'm grateful. And uh, my kids were born here. So um, every time I come back, I have warm feelings and great nostalgia. Thank you for that. Um, what I wanted us to talk about today is to talk about the relationship between science and religion. And that is a contentious topic for a couple different reasons. One is that there are a lot of religious people who are persuaded that science is the enemy. That if you allow science to have its sway, that all moral values will wash away and there'll be nothing but a godless relativism and no sense of right or wrong or good or evil and the world will become a chill, cold, despotic place. On the other side, you have a bunch of scientists who I can only presume had really terrible religious school experiences. <laughs> and for many of them, science is their new religion and they are at war with the other forms of religion which they see as somehow in conflict with science itself. And then there's the great majority of us who aren't educated particularly in either religion or in science trying to figure out how to make it work together. And that really was the topic of the book, to offer a way to understand science authentically, a way then to understand religion authentically so that they could be on the same team and they could work together. So that's what I want to lay out today briefly, if, you, if you'll bear with me, okay? Everybody got the map? We're going to talk a little about science. We're going to talk a little about religion. We're going to talk about the ways that they can work together. I'll fascinate you with some science stories, uh, and then we'll call it a day, I suppose. So let's agree that what science is and what science isn't. Science is a method for exploring 
that part of reality which is testable, replicable, and public. I will say this a couple times, you don't have to remember it yet, right? That part of reality which is testable, replicable, and public. Now, let's talk about each of those. For it to be replicable means that anything that has only happened once, science can't say anything about. Right? Because you have to be able to have it happen repeatedly so that you can compare and contrast it and you can do experiments on it to know whether what you think about it is accurate or not. Let me give you an example of how people often mistake causality even though they've accounted for all the facts. There's a famous uh, philosopher who was the first professional atheist. Right, that we now have them all over the place in America. They make a fortune writing about religion and trashing it. My mother, who is an atheist, doesn't understand them because she thinks the principal benefit of being an atheist is you don't have to think about religion. <laughs> but for these guys, it's a career, and so they trash religion. Their spiritual granddaddy is a man named David Hume, who was a Scottish philosopher in the 1800s. Hume talks about the confusion of facts and explanation with the following story. He tells the story about a young turkey who's being raised in some kind of a turkey hut. And every day, the farmer comes outside, pounds on the door of the hut, and throws corn on the ground for the turkey to eat. And after a couple days, the turkey, who's a very smart turkey, realizes that when you hear bang, 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 that is always followed by corn being scattered on the ground, which is clearly there for your nutrition. You're the turkey. And so the turkey deduces from this that it's not just one thing following another, that in fact the banging on the wall is what causes the corn to fall. And that the purpose of the wall is to make sure that the turkey is nourished. So every morning, bang, 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 food put on the floor, and the turkey gets a delicious meal. So the turkey looks forward to the bang, bang, bang in the morning until one fateful morning in November. You all know how the story ends. Right? That's an accurate accounting of the facts, but it turns out the explanation for the facts was dead wrong. Right? Now, that's true then for an event that happens once. You can't really compare and contrast it. So anything in nature that only happens once, scientists can offer guesses about, and they may actually be right. But it's important to remember that they're guessing. Right? There's no way to test it. So let me give you my favorite example of that the universe. How many universes do we know about? This is not a trick question. I'm not smart enough. But one. Right? There's only one that we know about. And there are many people with PhDs teaching in astrophysics departments and in physics departments 
who argue that there are an infinite number of universes out there of which ours is merely one. Could they be right? Yes, yes they could. But is this something that happens on a replicable basis? Are there multiple universes they can compare and contrast to determine this? No, they can't. Is it testable? Is there a way to test whether there are other universes outside of our space-time continuum? No, it is not, because you'd have to get outside of your space-time continuum to set up the test. And one of the things about space-time continua is you can't leave. Right? It's kind of like being Jewish in that sense. <laughs> so if that's the case, then however authoritative a scientist is, when that scientist gets up and says there are multiple universes, I want you to know that scientist is speaking as a human being who has a really good science education, but not as science. Because it's not replicable and it's not testable. And our definition of science, it's really important to hold on to that, is replicable, testable, and then finally, public. Right? If you have no public access to something, then it may or may not be real, but science doesn't have a way to grab onto it. I'll give you my favorite, for instance, of that. Consciousness, right? We all think we have consciousness, okay? But there's no way to probe it publicly. Now, I know a bunch of you are already coming up with brain experiments to show me why that's not the case. And so I want to distinguish here between brains, which are public, replicable, and testable, and minds, which are not. Right? Your brain, you can measure. So they can stick cords into your brain, and they can measure the electricity in different parts of your brain, and they can show a correlation. When you are aroused, this part of your brain has a flurry of electrical activity going on. And when you're depressed, this part of your brain has a flurry of activity or suppressed activity. They can measure that. But nobody can measure, oh my God, she's gorgeous, I have to meet her. Right? How you go from the physical electric activities of a brain to the feelings of a mind is a chasm. And if science is limited to what is public, replicable, and testable, then like Las Vegas, what happens in the mind stays in the mind. Right? I'll give you an easy, for instance, of that. I think your shirt is pink. Right? And you all can look at her, and the men in the room will say, yes, it's pink, and the women will say, well, really, it's magenta, really, it's chartreuse, really, it's whatever. We don't know the names of those colors. <laughs> but I can't know that when you look at that, you see the same pink I see. All I know is that every time you look at a color like that, you think pink, and every time I look at a color like that, I think pink. But whether I'm seeing what you're seeing, there is no way to know that. So consciousness is another one of those things 
where however smart the scientist, when they make statements about consciousness, they're talking like a scientifically literate human being. They're not speaking on behalf of science. Everybody with me so far? Public, replicable, testable, then a scientist gets to tell me. Now, part of what I'm giving up, and it's a big deal for a theologian to do, is that anything within that category, scientists have a veto over. You understand? So if it's something that's in the category of public and replicable and testable, if a scientist tells me this is the way it is, if I've looked at their arguments and their arguments are valid, I, as a religious person, I don't get to say, well, actually, my tradition says something else. Because there isn't Jewish physics and Japanese physics and Shinto physics. There's just physics, right? So in those things that a physicist has evidence for and can show me the evidence and show me the test and we can replicate that test again and again and again, the speed of light, for instance. That's not something that I get to say, well, the Talmud says differently, right? Now, that's a big concession, right? It means for those of us who want to argue that every claim our religious tradition makes about facts has to be accurate because we accept it on faith, I don't have room for that. So if your religion is one in which everything your religion claims has to be literally true, then it is true you are on a collision course with science. Right? And there are going to be some big problems you're going to have, and they're going to start this week, because this week we start reading the Bible all from the beginning again, and you know that there are a couple whoppers in <laughs> the story you're about to read. You may not remember it because it was a whole year ago, but I will just let you in, spoiler alert for those of you who are planning to go to shul, that there isn't a scientist alive who thinks that the universe was made 6,000 years ago and that every species currently in existence was there from the very beginning. Not one. So if your belief is either the Bible is literally true or it's bogus, then you're going to have a conflict with science or you're that kind of anti-religious scientist. Okay, so replicable, public, and testable. That's what science gets to weigh in on. And honest religious people have to be willing to back off for those kinds of things. Just to give you some Jewish examples of how that's a big deal, is it possible for the earth to continue rotating and for the sun and the moon to stand still, which happens in the book of Joshua. Is that possible? No, it is not possible. You can test, you can replicate, you can measure whether astronomical bodies can suddenly stop. Let me tell you that you should be grateful that it can't happen <laughs> because if in fact, the earth or the sun or the moon ever just stop in their tracks, that will be a very, very bad, no good day. Actually, it'll only be a very bad couple seconds. <laughs> After that, it's a wash. Okay, 
So we've got what science is. Now let's talk a little about what religion ought to be and has been historically. Part of the challenge is that there are religious people today who think that religion is a shortcut for knowledge. I don't have to read books because I have God. Right? I don't have to learn about the world because I have the Bible. The people who wrote the Bible didn't think that. They show that they are literate in the cultures of their time all the time. Their stories are riffs of other cultures. There are flood stories in every culture in the ancient Near East. There are creation stories in every culture in the ancient Near East. And it's clear that our ancestors knew them because they're playing games with them to make a certain point. Okay? One freebie here. This is uh, something that the rabbis now can't give sermons on if you're members of their congregation this week. Um, every ancient Near Eastern creation story ends with the creation of people to do the scut work for their gods. Right? People are meant to be servants to do the stuff the gods don't want to do. And the last thing that gets created in every creation story is a temple. The purpose of a temple is to be a palace for a god to live in. And what happens at the palace is you feed the god, you clothe the god, you bring nice liquor and drinks for the god, sometimes you bring virgins for the god, depending on the god's proclivities and political affiliation, right? All of that is what the temple was for, right? Um, so the Torah is doing something really radical when it has God make people and doesn't say, you're going to do my scut work for me, God says, you will be my image in the world. And then the last thing that's created is not a temple, but a Sabbath, a day on which people get a day off. That's huge. Right? And any ancient reader of the Torah would not have been distracted by how many days did the world get created in, and what got created on this day, and what got created on that day, they would have been fixated on, oh my goodness, we were not created to be slaves. That's the whole point of the story. That's overwhelming if you know the culture in which it emerged. Right? So if you have the tools for reading the Bible properly, then the Bible is not a book that means you don't have to study biology. It's a book that tells you what's the point, which science can't address, right? Because what's the point of life is not public, replicable, or testable, right? So you need religion to step in, and here comes the conflict. The real conflict between religion and some scientists, or some religion and some scientists, is there are some scientists who believe that that stuff which is public and replicable and testable is all there is. Right? Everybody follow me on that? Right? So if you're that kind of a scientist, then you think science is all there is. Because if science's business is to do the stuff that's testable and replicable, and there is nothing else that isn't replicable and testable, then science gets a veto on everything, and everything else is just an opinion which is to say, worthless.
but let me now play a philosophy trick on you. Here's the claim. All of reality is replicable, testable, and public. Is that claim replicable, testable, and public? No. So it turns out that when a scientist puts on a white coat and holds a stethoscope around their neck, which by the way, I don't know why physicists do because they don't use stethoscopes, <laughs> but let's say they stand there in the outfit and they say to you, all of reality is subject to science. Are they saying an opinion or are they saying science? It's an opinion. Now they may be right. Lots of people have opinions that turn out to be right. When Einstein decided that space-time was relative, he didn't have any empirical data. He had a really good hunch. Sometimes it pays off. Galileo had a really good hunch, and then he checked it out. But it's just a hunch. And here's what I want to say to my friend the scientist. If you want to say that all of reality is reducible to what's public and testable, you just got rid of consciousness. You just got rid of love. You just got rid of loyalty or inspiration or passion, right? Most of what we think makes life worth living can be augmented by science but not replaced by it. What makes this room a good place to be in is the relationships that are in the room, not the air conditioning and the lighting. The lighting helps. Right? It's a good thing, but, but it's what we're doing together, and that is beyond the reach of science. So if we understand that the job of science is to be by far the best tool in the history of the world for understanding physical things, and it is. Science has brought us countless blessings. And so it has earned pride of place. Anything that can be tested, you turn over to a scientist. Don't ask your rabbi. Right? But don't reduce your life to that small subsection of reality. Because there's a whole big section of reality beyond it that can't be tested. And that's the world of meaning. And for that, we need other tools. So the way we understand consciousness is we ask people, what are they thinking? And why are they thinking that? Right? And the more you hear from people, the more you understand the richness of human consciousness. When I was a kid, scientists assumed that animals lacked consciousness. Right? I remember being a 14-year-old kid who thought he was going to be a biologist, reading college textbooks on animal behavior, all of which said, you can't impose human feelings on your dog or your cat. And I remembered thinking, this professor who wrote this book doesn't live with one. <laughs> because if he lived with one, he would know how ridiculous that is. Right? Now you read a biology textbook, and it says, of course these animals have what we think of as human feelings. Where do you think your feelings came from? We are evolved from them. The feelings come from them first, right? So science has a way of broadening itself, but that still stays outside of the nature of science. 
I want to just say one other thing, and then I want to open it up to a conversation. It seems to me the benefit of this understanding of science and religion is that they actually can be helpful to each other. Religion does badly when it attempts to ignore reality. It takes religion to make mediocre people evil. I'm going to say that twice. It takes religion to make mediocre people evil. Right? The, the Orthodox Jews in Israel, they didn't start out evil, but if you can look at a girl's sleeve and pick up a rock and throw it at her head because the sleeve isn't long enough, you have to ask yourself, what would it take to make a basically decent human being do something atrocious? Right? There are films of gay people being thrown off of roofs under ISIS. What would it take to make normal people do something so completely heinous? Right? Widows being put on funeral pyres in India. Hideous. Right? What would that take? Right? We're watching in this country as governors of different states are opposing business interests so that people don't have to celebrate love that they think is icky. Here's the news for you. I've been married for 34 years. All love is icky. <laughs> it just depends on your perspective, that's all. <laughs> it takes religion to make someone that hateful. So bad religion is a terrible thing, but so is bad science. You know, and I just want to point out here that bad science turned the murder of Jews into an intellectual exercise. What would we need to engineer to be able to more efficiently exterminate an entire people? And this isn't just a German problem or a European problem. In North America, we had the interesting question of how could we effectively defoliate Southeast Asia? And that defoliated some of the people in Southeast Asia too, but that's an interesting chemical question, isn't it? Right? So science unmoored from larger questions of values and meaning becomes deadly. Religion unmoored from reality and the basic reality check of facts becomes despotic. They need each other because in conversation, religion can raise the question of what values are you pursuing and what are you prepared to sacrifice in the pursuit of those values or advance in the pursuit of those values. Religion can turn to science and say, this can't just be a technical question. This has to be a question that includes your goals and your values. And science can turn to religion and say, to the extent that you are predicated on lies, your religion will become brittle and cruel. So what I want to invite us to do, and really that's what I wrote the book for, was to invite us to take the wall down between the two. Let's give science its legitimate place as 
the traffic officer who gets to decide what the facts are. How old is the universe? How big is the universe? How does time work? Um, how do chemicals interact? How do chemicals interact in such a way as to self-organize into organic material? How does that self-organize into biological material? How does that self-organize into consciousness and psychology? I'm willing to let the scientists have their, have their go at it. And I'm willing to take what they tell me, so long as they tell me not on authority. That's the other thing I need to tell you. Science doesn't have authority. Right? You never accept something in science. Well, we do all the time. But you should not accept something just because some big shot said it. You should accept it because the evidence is compelling. Right? That's one of the exciting things about science, is that a complete unknown can oppose someone totally world famous and wind up winning the argument. Because it's all based on the argument. Right? And religion does better when someone is looking over our shoulder and calling us on our deceptions, calling us on our dogma. And then we can keep science honest too by keeping it on track to say the purpose of science ought to be a tool for human thriving. And if your science is destroying the environment, that's not good science. If your science is making it harder for our grandchildren to expect to live into adulthood, that's a bad science. Right? So however feasible something is, we need to be able to remind scientists of why they're doing what they're doing and that they are humans first. Okay, so let me just close with a consciousness thing just to tease you uh, and to titillate a bit and then I'll open it up to your conversation. Some of you have heard me talk about this before. You know that one of the claims that primates make is that you have to have a brain in order to have a mind. I'll say that again because I know that's a weird kind of sentence. Primates think you have to have a brain. They think you have to have neurology in order to have a mind. And in our case, that's true. We do mediate mindfulness through brains. But here's a science question I'm interested in. Is it possible to have mindfulness without a brain? You understand for some scientists this is a heretical thing to say. There was a book written by an Israeli botanist called What Do Plants Feel? And in it he makes the argument that it's unfair for monkey-based life, that's us, to define biological functions by how we get them to work, right? So in other words, if you want to say seeing involves using eyes, that reflects the bias of our species. Let's define seeing as differentiating among photons. And if that's what you remember seeing is then people use eyes to see. Right? The question then is, can plants see? If you mean by that, do they have eyes? The answer is no. But you've stacked the deck by the way you've asked the question. Right? If what you mean by seeing is, can plants distinguish between photons? Well, the answer is yes, they do all the time. Can plants talk to each other? Well, if talking means manipulating air through your epiglottis, your teeth, and your tongue, then no, they can't. But if, if talking means conveying specific information, 
that then generates an appropriate response. Well, here's an interesting thing. If you have a bunch of plants in a room and you light a match under one set of leaves, that plant burning will emit a chemistry that tells all the other plants to thicken their skin. Plants become more flame retardant if one plant in their room started burning. That sounds a lot like talking to me, doesn't it? Hey, it's hot over here, put on some fire retardant, right? So it turns out there are multiple ways to deliver, but my favorite example isn't from the world of plants, although they're very interesting. My favorite example comes from slime mold. And this example's in the book. There was a professor in Tokyo who wanted to do an experiment with slime mold and consciousness. Now here's what's interesting about slime mold. You may not be up on slime mold. <laughs> slime mold is a multicellular colony, right? It's not a thing, I mean, it's a blob, but it's, it's a blob made up of lots of little blobs, none of whom have nerves. So there is no neurology. They don't have neurology, they don't have brains. If you set a blob of slime mold on a glass plate and you make the room toasty warm, unlike, for example, this room, <laughs> and you put some chicken broth on the plate, what the slime mold will do to maximize its intake of nutrient is it will start to grow evenly in all directions. So his experiment was glass dish, comfortable toasty room, chicken soup, and the slime mold is happily growing away. And then at 29 minutes, he turned the temperature to freezing. In order to preserve its own heat, what slime mold does in such an instant is retract and stop growing. A minute of freezing, he kicks the temperature back up, the slime mold warms up, starts growing again, 29 minutes later on the button, turns it to freezing, the slime mold stops, he turns it back up, it gets warm, it starts growing again. By the fourth cycle, here's the fun part of this science, by the fourth cycle, at 28 minutes, the slime mold stopped. Go figure. I want to remind you, slime mold don't have brains. They don't have nerves. But if that was a human being doing that, you would call that anticipation, wouldn't you? So the only reason not to call it that is because you come in with a bias that says, well, slime mold can't plan. But they did. Gets even better than that. So he breaks the cycle, right? No turning to freezing. After two cycles, the slime mold just grows through the 28-minute mark. Keeps growing. Third cycle, turns it down to freezing again. The cycle after that, you know what the slime mold does? Stops. That sounds like learning from experience. It sounds like anticipating. It sounds like planning, doesn't it? They've done interesting experiments with slime mold. They'll put them not on a glass dish. They'll put them on a maze. So they'll be in the middle of the maze, and they'll put food at either end of the maze. 
it takes a slime mold only 20, 30 minutes to figure out the most efficient way through the maze. You know what your kids do when they take their pencil and they kind of mark to figure out what's the way to get from one entrance to the other entrance? The slime will do that too. And they come up with the best way to connect from one end to the other. Right? Now that's an animal, well, it's a creature that doesn't have a brain. So the last thing I want to leave you with then is what if we turn back to science and we say, hear me out. I'm not saying that brains aren't crucial for mammals. That is how we process the world. But it looks like there's mindfulness baked into the universe. It's baked in in several ways we used to deny. We used to say that kids didn't gain minds until well into their first year of life. I remember when my twins were born, the doctors told me that Jacob wasn't really smiling. Right? Okay, they can't really smile. Except I know that they were twins, they were separated at birth because Jacob was two pounds when he was born, and Shira was a gigantic four pounds. So she came home right away, and he had to stay in the hospital ICU for a month. And when he came home, we put him down in the same crib, and Shira rolled to face him. Well, but they don't intentionally roll, the doctor would tell us. I don't know. I was there. I saw her roll over to her brother, and I saw what sure looked like a smile on his face. I'm sure that 30 years from now, some smart doctor will have written a new textbook that will explain that, in fact, they have emotions way earlier than we knew and cognitive capacity. They've done tests with newborn infants where they will be unfair in the distribution, for example, of blankets or of milk. Right? A kid in a crib doesn't mind being cold if the other kid is cold, too but they howl if the other kid has a blanket and they don't. From a couple weeks old, which means mindfulness goes way, way back chronologically earlier than we ever thought. We've discovered that fetuses in the womb can discern their parents' voices, right? They don't necessarily have a concept of mother, but they know I'm connected to that one and not to that one. That means mindfulness pre-birth. We also know, and I'm very interested in this because of my son, there are people in vegetative comas. Jacob doesn't have a vegetative coma, but Jacob is unable to communicate with verbal speech. So there was a guy in Scandinavia who was in a vegetative coma for 17 years. And for 17 years, the doctor would come into his hospital room and tell his mother we should pull the plug. There's no one there. There's no activity there. A nurse came in using a kind of facilitated communication like what Jacob has, and she was able to detect slight motion of the toe so that she put a board that had a Y and an N on it. Can you hear me? The toe went to Y. 17 years of hearing his mother say, I'm not going to pull the plug on him, and all the experts saying, there's no one there, he's already gone. And he couldn't move to let them know. Right? We're seeing that more and more as we are open to the idea of mindfulness, as we're open to the idea that creatures that we defined as not having 
consciousness, it turns out, do? What if the whole universe is awash in consciousness? So the last thing I want to say, the only part of nature we know from the inside is us. And if I were to define you leaving your consciousness out, I would leave you out. So if we want to take seriously the scientific method, it's science if it's public, replicable, and testable, then I want to put a piece of science data out there, which is the only part of nature we know subjectively has subjectivity. So you need to come up with a good objective argument for why that's not true for all of it. Right? The burden of proof, in other words, should be on the people who want to pretend that the universe is a big dead machine, which they have no grounds for knowing because they've never been a rock or a tree or a star. They've never been an atom or a molecule. They've never been an electron. They don't know. Now, I'm not saying that electrons whiz around thinking, I'm going to go over there now, now I'm going to go over here. But maybe there's a mindfulness that is at the level of electrons too. And maybe that could create a scientific agenda that would allow us to better understand, for example, other living things. Because we're now discovering mindfulness that we used to deny. Right? Everybody's current concern with how animals feel is brand new because 50 years ago the dogma was they don't. But they do. They used to think that black people didn't really feel. Turns out they were wrong. They used to think that women were gadabouts and superficial. Of course, the people who had that theory were men, so you would expect the theory to be flawed. It turns out that mindfulness goes all kinds of places. My son Jacob is autistic. And he has all kinds of things to say about the world once we figure out how to let his thoughts out. So another place that science and religion can partner together is religion's assertion that everyone matters, which is not a scientific <coughs> statement. It's not provable or testable. Right? But it launched democracy, didn't it? We hold these truths to be self-evident, that all are created equal. Right? It said all men, but I'm improving it. Okay. That's not a science claim. You can't demonstrate that. That's a religious assertion, but it opened up new possibilities that had never existed in human history before. So what I'd like to leave you with is the possibility that intelligent religion that is to say, we turn to religion for questions of meaning and significance, not of fact. And humble science, science that realizes it is the master of a method for particular parts of reality, but it doesn't get a veto about reality as a whole. And that means they both need to be in conversation to create a world which maximizes the accuracy of our facts and the value of our meaning. Thank you. I just want to get authorization. Do we have time for questions and comments? Yeah, about 10 we have time for 10 minutes. Yes, ma'am. Okay, so we have right here one scientist who claims 
climate change, and another scientist who claims the opposite. So they're both scientists. So how do you balance that testable, etc.? Great. So so here's a place where religion and science are somewhat different and somewhat similar. Religion, you should follow the rabbi who's cute and charismatic. <laughs> People used to come up to me when I was what my mother calls a real rabbi, that is to say a pulpit rabbi, and they would say things like, Rabbi, what do we believe about the afterlife? Which is a weird sentence grammatically if you think about it. Like, I know what I believe about an afterlife. I have no idea what you believe about an afterlife, and I don't know what it means to say we believe something about an afterlife. But it meant that they were willing to open up a space in their head, and then whenever I plopped in, they would walk out saying, that's what we believe. Right? Never do that with a scientist. Right? So if a scientist wants to tell you that climate change, and what they mean by that, by the way, no one's denying that the climate is changing. The issue is, do human activities have an impact on climate change? That's the question. Right? Right? So you should ask any scientist on either side of it, what's your evidence? How do you know that? Right? And then I will just tell you the end of the story, which is you may find one scientist who denies the human impact on climate change, but there are 100,000 who assert the opposite. Um, and it looks to me like the evidence is overwhelming. So I think that those people who are resisting the notion of human impact on climate change are reflecting political presuppositions and not good science in much the way that the people who denied that cigarette smoking led to cancer, for which there were studies that were produced. Um, those people were politically motivated and were not really reflecting good science. But check the evidence, follow the evidence. Whenever scientists say anything, check the evidence. The first question should be, how do you know that? And the second question should be, how do you know that you know that? <laughs> yeah. um, if, if you have an Wonderful thing like people are not slaves. But then it also says when you take the land, slaughter everybody. How yeah. do you do? Great. So for me, you want to understand the question? The Bible, the parts of the Bible that we rabbis like to talk about are the lofty parts that agree with what we think. And then we tend to not talk much about the parts that are, oops, that's embarrassing. Uh, and by embarrassing, I mean barbaric. So, so what do I do with that? Look, my approach liberates me from that problem. It would be a huge and insurmountable problem if a timeless, all-knowing, all-powerful divinity had spoken every word. right? Because then I'm stuck having to serve a dictator who apparently doesn't value Canaanite lives. right? But I don't think that. I think that the Bible was our people using their intuition to try to apply what they understood as coming from God. Right? And I think they're right in that. I think that's how we do it all the time. We all connect the dots as best we can. So the Bible is a book that asserts that all people have equal value, but none of us understand that or live that perfectly, do we? Take a look at contemporary American culture, where we've had a document for 200 and some odd years that says that all people are created equal. Have we arrived? No. I don't think so. So it's possible to articulate an ideal that you then don't live up to. 
that you don't even know you're not living up to it until someone points out there's a contradiction between this and this. So for me, the important saving statement about Judaism is we're not a book of biblical fundamentalism. The Torah means for us what the rabbis say it means. And here's what the rabbis do that on that very point I think is so interesting. What does Jewish law dictate if in leaving today, someone walks up in the parking lot and identifies themselves as a Hittite? A Hittite, by the way, is one of the seven Canaanite nations that the Bible commands us to exterminate. Right? So you're walking out and the guy who's holding the door for you says, by the way, you might be interested in knowing this. I am on my mother and my father's side, Canaanite, 100%. Right? Are you obligated in Jewish law to kill that person? It's a question. I'm asking you a question. No, you're not only not obligated to kill that person, according to rabbinic law, it would be murder. You would be tried for murder. Why? Because the commandment was limited to a time and a place, and it is no longer entirely clear, even if someone thinks that they're Canaanite, that they are, and therefore, benefit of the doubt, you're not allowed to kill them. Now that, at the same time, that in the medieval period, the Catholic Church was using those biblical verses to justify taking back the land of Israel. And by taking back, I mean taking, because it was never theirs. Right? So at the same time that the rabbis are saying, you can't use those biblical verses as precedent, the church was saying, oh yes, you can. Right? Judaism is a process. And we are rooted in the Bible, but the process of Judaism helps us to discriminate between which biblical verses and values live today and which ones have to be reinterpreted or simply parked on the sidelines. Right? Judaism is never reducible to simply the text of a particular book, even the Talmud. Right? So that's how I deal with that. Yes. Um. Before you were a rabbi and a theologian, you were involved in politics. Um, if we had scientists and theologians in the same room, you would be a great keynote speaker, getting people to talk with one another. Um, with politics today, you seem to have an irreconcilable difference between people who think the Constitution is a living document and those who think it's a um, should only be interpreted the way the originators intended it to be. How would you get people in those two different groups to, to talk with one another and to appoint a Supreme Court justice? <laughs> <laughs> so I have two things to say about politics. Repeat the question, um, please. The question is, how would I get the, the two sides of American political uh, debate to talk to each other, too? Um, so, the first thing I want to tell you is that I know I'm in Orange County because driving up here, there was a sign on the side of the road that said, Jesus for President. <laughs> I am assuming that he did not authorize that. <laughs> because from what I can tell, it would be a demotion. <laughs> Here's what I'd like us to try to do and I'm not going to here tip my hand as to where I stand politically, I'm just going to say the following. I'd like you to spend some time thinking about why would a sane human being support the other side? Okay? 
there are deplorables on both sides. Right? I know many, and I'm related to some. <laughs> so what I'd like to ask is those of you who are voting for Hillary, either enthusiastically or holding your nose and voting for her, ask yourself, why might a not crazy person in Ohio feel obligated to vote for Trump? They're not crazy. I don't want you to answer that question. I want you to think about that question. And then for those of you who are voting for Trump, either enthusiastically or holding your nose, ask yourself, why would someone who's not trying to tear down Western civilization and oppose fundamental human values, um, why might that person feel the need to vote for Hillary? Right? Conversation will only happen if we reach for the sane people on the other side. Right? And here I will close with the following. Senator Dole, after he lost the election to then-President Clinton, was asked, how can you work with a man who was your enemy? And he said, he wasn't my enemy, he was my opponent. Right? Democracy can only work if we realize we are not enemies. We may have very different visions of what constitutes American thriving. And we should have those conversations. The founders of this country believed that if we talked to each other long enough, we would figure it out. So we need to keep talking to each other and not about each other. And we need to be able to reach for the same core on the other side. It exists. There are strong reasons why someone might feel that they have to vote for either one of the two candidates who run. Right? And then the last thing I'll say politically is, it is an astonishment to me that a country filled with so much talent and genius and innovation can't come up with better candidates. And here's what I'm afraid of. I am afraid that we have gotten the candidates we deserve. So the question I want you to ask yourself is how have we created a culture in which no sane, talented person would be attracted to the position? We are responsible for that. This is our democracy. And if we've made that job unlivable, then we need to do something about it for four years from now and eight years from now and four years after that, we'll be in the same position with different names. So it's up to us to create a political culture which encourages smart, sensitive, talented people to think they could make a positive difference without sacrificing their humanity and their family. Thank you very much.